Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ Church. My name is Elijah Daly, and I get to be one of the ministers here on staff. And uh, I've gotten to serve at Christ Church for the last several years. But one of my favorite things about serving here is that I get to wear a lot of hats. And so today, I'm excited to be able to wear the preaching hat and really just to share the Word of God with you. And Luke 2, verse 8 through 15 is where we're going to be spending uh, the more majority of our time this morning. So if you want to flip there in your Bible, uh, please do that. But really, as we talk about this Advent season, what I want to do is just remind us about what it is Mark set up for us last week. Advent is a season where we are reminded of what the entrance of Christ to this world meant. But it's also a reminder that we are still anticipating another entrance when he will come again. But in Christ are found hope, peace, joy, and love. And so if you've been with us uh, at this church for a while, you know we celebrate Advent literally every year. Now, this is the first time we've made a series out of it where we get to spend Sunday mornings working through what the implications are. But every, every year we do this on Sunday nights. We come together and we celebrate the fact that because of Christ, we have hope, peace, joy, and love. And we light these candles as a reminder of what it is God has accomplished while we also wait for their final fulfillment when he comes again. This is the whole point. And last week, Mark talked to us about how the gift of hope challenges our faith. What I wanna talk about today is how the gift of peace challenges our expectations. Now, maybe you don't have any expectations about peace. Maybe your life is perfect right now and you're like, I never won't even ever think about it. Uh, maybe you are someone who's like, I don't even think peace is possible. It's just an impossible, impossible concept. And so I literally just have avoided it altogether. Uh, maybe you're somebody who, who instead just busies your life. This is what I tend to do in times where I feel unrest. I busy my life so I don't even have to think about the fact that something might be hurting or confusing or missing or lost. I don't know about you. I don't know what your expectations are. But I do believe this, is that every time I begin to look at peace, I do believe that it begins to challenge some of my expectations, whether I knew I had them or not. And I think it's pretty safe to say that most of us in this room will be confronted by the fact at some point that we lack peace. That there's a moment in our life where we believe that we could, be, we could use relief. And we don't have to go far to begin to see the fact that this is probably a universal thing. You turn on the news and you can obviously see the wars and the violence that literally surround us all the time. And it's amazing the things that we've been able to accomplish, the weapons, the, the, the force that we're able to use. And we constantly just see how those possibilities are escalated. In fact, uh, uh, Einstein is credited to have said, I don't know how World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Now, what's really interesting, uh, this is a really fascinating thing that I came across one time, is that dynamite explosives in general, it's actually a relatively new invention. It wasn't until about the 1800s that, that dynamite was invented. And it was invented by this brilliant Swedish uh, inventor. And he created not just dynamite, but all kinds of explosives and weapons and war became for him just a means of great gain. He gained a massive fortune from it. Now, by the end of his life, he left behind this fortune. And you may, may, you may not know this, uh, you may know this already, but this was actually Alfred Nobel. Now, Nobel died without a spouse, without kids to inherit his fortune. He died alone. But what he did instead was he took his will 
And he decided he was going to put together a committee. And this committee was going to offer and award these different uh, awards in, in, in regards to just uh, physics or chemistry. And specifically what he did was he made one for the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, the Nobel Peace Prize was supposed to be awarded to the person who shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between the nations and the abolition or reduction of standing armies and the formation and spreading of peace congresses. That's a mouthful. But the point is, he made this award in hopes to better society and better the human condition. Why would he do this? No one really knows. No one really knows why it is he decided to create this award. A lot of people speculate. Perhaps it was because he acknowledged how much war and death he contributed to throughout his life and profited by. We're not really sure. But regardless of the fact, this award was set up and it's done some pretty cool things. Politicians have won this award. Scientists have won this award. Humanitarians have won this award. But there's a problem. Biology hasn't cured cancer and disease. Psychology has not healed our homes. And politics has not fixed morality. Every single person in this room desires contentment and relief and peace at one point or another. And the problem is most of the things that are offered to us end up failing. We all will still die in the end, right? But the gift of peace challenges our expectations. That peace is not found in the absence of difficulty, but in the presence of the divine. And so today what I want to talk about is three different things. The possibility of peace, is it even possible? The problem of peace, and the person of peace. So that's where we're going. The possibility of peace, the problem of peace, and the person of peace. So if we look at uh, our text today, Luke 2, verse 8, it says this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, why is it that Luke includes shepherds? Why would he do this? Well, I think that there's two important reasons that I don't want us to miss out on. I think that this is part of why Luke really wanted to to use these people within the story. The first is that it continues to affirm the historicity of what took place. These shepherds were people who would have been out in the field trying to manage their, their flock, leading them to places and sources of food and water. And Luke is constantly doing this throughout his gospel. He's, he's constantly trying to, to really ground all the things that he's talking about in history. We are not talking about the myth of Jesus. This isn't just a legend. This is, these are events that actually took place. And so as you begin to look at, at the gospel of Luke, you will constantly see these historical details coming up just time after time after time. And if you remember, Mary and, and Joseph were traveling to Bethlehem. Why? Because a census was being taken. Luke records this. And so Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem in order that he could register through the, the family that he had that was from that area. Now, of course, we know that becomes meaningful, significant, because Joseph was from the line of David, that King David from the Old Testament. King David was the, the king, the great king that God promised he would bring the Messiah through. And so as we begin to look at this, Luke is, is trying to ground all of this in history, that these shepherds would begin to be witnesses of what happened to corroborate the story. The Messiah was supposed to bring justice and peace to the world, and this is exactly what the angel begins to announce to these shepherds. Look here in verse 11. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now Christ is simply a translation of Messiah in Hebrew to Christ in Greek. It's not a last name. This isn't Jesus Christ. It's not a last name. It's a title. And every time Christ is mentioned, it's trying to tell us something, that all the promises of God are coming true. They're fulfilled in this person and all of his work. And Luke is trying to emphasize this over and over again. Because it would have been natural for the shepherds to be tending to their sheep out in the field, out at night, because it would have been warmer. It wouldn't have been as unbearable. He would have been able to find, lead them to those places of nourishment. And then these angels show up and they announce this news and is able to lead them to the place to see and witness what had happened. This actually happened. That's the first important reason. The other important reason is because Luke is also obsessed with making sure we know that the gospel is for every single person. Now, what does that have to do with shepherds? Well, I think most of us, when we think of shepherds, we think of them as these kind of gentle, humble people who are just guiding their flock along and these sheep have become their friends and they are just trying to, trying to tend to their flock. But in actuality, at this point in time, shepherds were seen as outcasts. They were dirty, they smelt, it was a nomadic profession. And so generally they were just on the move, constantly isolated from society. And so it's interesting that Luke records that these were the people that would begin to hear the news of the coming Messiah. God chose these people to, to, to report this to. But it's a reminder. And Luke does this throughout his entire gospel. Listen, if you're somebody, you're like, yeah, I kind of identify with this outcast mentality, the, the other, the sinner. Luke is a great gospel to start with because Luke is obsessed with making sure his readers know that Christ came for you. And this is the point of why Luke begins to add, why God begins to weave the shepherds into the story. Because it's a reminder that every single person has dignity. Every single person has worth and value. And that regardless of who we are or what we have done, because God's relationship with us is defined more by his grace than by our goodness, so too is his peace. This is one of the beautiful parts about what God is doing, what peace is entering the world. And if the gift of peace challenges our expectations, another is that we have to be perfect or good enough to receive it. The message from the angels was clear. Peace had come into the world and it was available for every single person. Peace was possible. But there's a problem with peace. The problem with peace is that too many of us in this room still lack it. The possibility of peace is fine, but if we can never rest in it, what is the point? And if peace is not the absence of difficulty, but the presence of the divine, how, we get, how do we get into the presence? Well, here's, we see this problem pretty emphatically in, in verse nine. Look here at Luke two, verse nine. It says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. This is the opposite of what we would expect. An angel shows up and with him, this glory, this all-encompassing light that we can only assume is just this magnificent brilliance invading. This, is, this angel is the representation of God. It's a representative of God. His very presence. But it's not peace they experience. It's fear. Why? Why is that? 
Well, I have two kids. Um, one of them, his name is Keller. He's almost four years old. He's been, he, was, he was up here uh, very uninterested in what was taking place. Uh, the funny thing is he's here all three services because him and him, his mom and I are both serving. And um, so last, last service, it was like 10 kids up there and it was really amplified. He was just not interested in, in uh, participating. But he's usually the life of the party. I love Keller. And one of the things we have going on right now is when I would come home, he would just come and he'd run and just give me a huge hug. But there's another time of the day where the exact opposite happens, and that is nap time. The kid hates nap time. He loves to play. And so we usually put him down about the same time every single day, and the battle rages. And y'all parents know, nap time is sacred. Talking about peace, uh, that is one thing that we try to enforce. Uh, glory to God, amen. So we try to get him to go to bed, but after about 30 minutes or so, we start to hear those noises, you know, like, okay, he's not sleeping. And so we'd have to go in there and there was, he usually had two reactions. If he heard us coming, he would run and get in his bed. If he didn't hear us coming, he would just be caught red-handed like this. <laughs> and that's kind of his MO. That's what he would do. Um, but he got into this really weird phase where he would start putting clothes on over the clothes that he was wearing. Uh, so check out this picture. Yeah, see, it's just like, it, I don't know why he was doing it for a while. It wasn't just underwear. I mean, it was all, all sorts of things, all sorts of things. We'd come in and he would just be caught red-handed right there. And there was, and you guys see that face too, right? This is, this is part of the problem. My presence to him becomes unbearable if it seems as though he's getting in trouble. And I think that this is a helpful, a helpful lens in which we see the story. The presence of the divine can become pretty uncomfortable when we think we're getting caught with our underwear on. And that's the point. The presence of peace was there. But when our life is characterized by a life of rebellion, by attempting to find peace in literally anything else other than God, that when he finally shows up, it exasperates our problem. It doesn't cure it. This is the problem of peace. It can become much more threatening than we thought. And most of us in this room probably experience a lack of peace in three different areas, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And really they can overlap a lot as well. So for instance, in our relationships, some of us will, will begin to believe that if we just projected the, the, the right image, if we looked a certain way, if people saw us in a specific lens, then we would have peace. And so what we do is we obsess. We obsess over the clothes that we wear. We obsess over the party that we're planning. It has to go exactly right. Uh, people have to enjoy the food a certain way. And what we do is we just end up being um, really anxious even about little things, just like a birthday party that we're planning for our kid or something like that. I mean, it happens so easily. And I love what Tim Keller says. This kind of sums it up really well, I think. He says that to be loved but not known is shallow. To be loved or to be known but not loved, that is our greatest fear. And both of those things can lead to crippling anxiety. Where we begin to wonder if we truly matter at all. And we become worried, fixated, on a thought pattern that constantly is questioning, am I enough? The other thing is death or pain. So either we or people we know are experiencing the threat of losing a life or a loved one, or perhaps it's just that we're experiencing pain in a way that we're in desperate desire for relief. And two things typically tend to happen. Either we downplay it 
as if the circumstances don't matter at all. We wear a mask and we try to just project normalcy or we just become completely debilitated and life no longer has any joy. The other is shame or guilt. Either we or people we know, they've done something or we've done something that makes us feel unlovable. And the guilt within it is so crippling. There's some of you sitting in this room right now wondering if you could ever be forgiven. And what we do is one of two things. We either become cynical and isolated, believing everything and everyone is bad, or we become obsessed with doing good works and hoping that it will make up for all that we have done. This is the problem of peace. We manufacture peace or we abandon the idea altogether. If people see us the right way, if we're healthy, if we have the right lifestyle, if we have a significant other, if we have enough friends, if we have enough money, if we have the right job title, then we have peace. Then we have peace. Or we abandon it altogether. We recluse into isolation. And we attempt to convince ourselves that it never mattered anyways. The reason these areas become so stressful or they induce such fear is not only because of how we define peace, but how we believe our circumstances fit into that definition. If I were to ask you right now, how to define peace? My guess is you would answer that question by the same way I felt like this was the only definition I could find. It was the absence of disturbance. It was the absence of, of warfare. It was the absence of, of stress or anxiety. It was the absence of all the things that contribute to a life of worry. The issue is that is not how the Bible defines peace. The Bible does not define peace by what it lacks. It defines peace by what it has. Peace is the possession of all that matters all at once. That is what peace is. It's like when you're doing a puzzle and you put it all together. And I'm not talking like a, a kid puzzle. I'm talking like one of those thousand piece puzzles. And you get to the end and you have one piece that isn't in the box. And you're wondering if you just wasted your time. Peace is putting that last piece in. Peace is the possession of all that matters all at once. It's seeing the whole picture connect. Or it's like when you were a kid and your mom comes in the morning, that morning, and she's like, hey, school got canceled, snow day, keep sleeping. Peace is the possession of all that matters all at once. Or it's like when you get that phone call from a family member or the doctor, and they say, I'm cancer free. Peace is the possession of all that matters all at once. But you might say to me, Elijah, I got my call. And it wasn't that I was cancer-free. What if I will never live up to the expectations that are put on me in my job? What if I fail as a parent? What if I will never be forgiven? This is the problem of peace. Because we start to panic. As soon as our concerns or doubts rise up, we start to panic and we search for peace in literally anything else but God. And then when God shows up, he only reveals what has happened and it exasperates the problem. It, it makes for more stress. And I'm guessing that most of us in this room probably have an expectation that if God were good, he would solve our peace problem. But I think that this is another expectation that he knocks down. 
peace may be available to everyone, but no one actually deserves it. This is what Luke says in 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. How can God be pleased with us when we attempt to find peace outside of him? Stress, anxiety, fear, these are simply symptoms. The symptoms of a heart problem that remind us that we have put too much value on something that we believe is going to bring us peace. Or it's a symptom of the fact that we are separated from the only God who could ever give us peace. And it creates two problems. One is that it's impossible to have peace when we, when we are apart from God, when we're trying to, to find it in something else. The other problem is because as soon as we start to find it in something else, it's impossible to have peace with God. We stand condemned already. This is the problem of peace. So how do we escape this problem of peace? The person of peace. This is exactly what Paul speaks about in Philippians 4 when he says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, you, may be, you might be like me when I read a text like this, and I'm like, who is Paul to say something like that? Does he know my circumstance? Does he know the people I've had to say goodbye to? Does he know the health that I've had to battle? But I, I think 2 Corinthians 11 gives us a greater image. Listen to this. In verse 24, it says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? This is the man that says he has peace. And I hope you hear me. I'm not trying to belittle your struggles any more than I'm trying to suppress my own. I'm simply saying if a man like this can have peace, can I get a sip of what he's having? How is it that this man says he has peace that transcends all understanding? And this is what he says. I have this peace because it's found in Christ Jesus, the person of peace. Look here in, in Luke 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angel says, don't fear. Why would the angel tell them not to fear? Were they showered with gold? Did he promise them their youth and their beauty? Were, were they made kings? No, it's something that transcends those categories. The angel says that there's good news because even though that they're shepherds and they're outcasts and they're sinners, even though the glory of God came upon them in a sudden rush and caught them with their underwear on, even though the presence of God came, they were not crushed by it. They were invited into it. Why? Because Jesus is not just Messiah and Lord, he's a savior. And they were in need of a savior. You see, church, we are the shepherds. We are the outcasts. We are the sinners. 
who are in desperate need of a savior. But for the glory of God to shine upon us, darkness had to fall upon him. You see, for us to experience the presence of God, he had to be forsaken by it. To become like us, Christ had to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. But to save us, he'd have to be wrapped in burial ones. And I don't want you to miss this. Because at times we begin to question and wonder why peace isn't possible, why, why we're not experiencing or feeling peace. And we begin to fight a battle within ourselves trying to ask this question. And perhaps you're not satisfied by the answer. Perhaps there's not a satisfactory answer to why there's pain and evil. But I hope that you see that the cross is the emphatic communication from God that it isn't because he doesn't care. You see, there is no depth of pain or sorrow that any person will experience that our God has not gone deeper still. And he does so in order to bring about peace, redemption, forgiveness, and life. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And here again, we see another expectation being knocked down. The presence of pain does not mean the absence of peace. Pain may be a distraction to peace, but it is not an obstacle to it. Because in Christ, our worst moments, our greatest failures, become formative to showcasing his greatest strength. And our lives become the stage of his glory and grace and goodness. This is why Paul can say, I have peace and it transcends all understanding because the one thing that truly matters but that we could never possess has been freely given so that we can both acknowledge the fact that we've attempted to find peace somewhere else and be forgiven when we surrender to the presence of God. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, God supplies it all. He fulfills it all. Peace is not found in the absence of difficulty but in the presence of the divine. But if Christ remained in the grave, what would it mean? What peace is even possible if, our, if we're still determined for a grave? Well, Luke continues on in verse 13 and 14. He says this, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, we don't get to look at the entire gospel of Luke uh, but I don't want you to miss this. You see, Luke begins and ends his gospel in the same way. And I think he does this to kind of create a really emphatic idea for us. In the beginning, an angel shows up and begins announcing what Jesus would accomplish. And he does so to who? Mary. And you see, where we're at, our text for this morning is the last time that we would see an angel in the book of Luke until when? The very last chapter, when he would show up and announce what Jesus would do to Mary. And this is what he says. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. 
Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. It's not destined to a grave. This peace transcends it. So how do we get it? Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Church, do you want peace? Go and see. From the shepherds to the angels, go and see. Because the final expectation that is broken is that if peace is the possession of all that matters, all at one, it's not only seeking to have, pe- have Christ. Peace is not only seeking to have Christ, but acknowledging that he has us. And because he has us, death can take nothing that God will not give back. I love the way that Robert Louis Stevenson, he's a famous author, he talks about this storm. He tells a story of a storm. I wanna read it for you. He says, there was a storm that was caught off a vessel of a rocky coast and it threatened to drive it and its passengers to destruction. In the midst of the terror, one daring man, contrary to orders, went to the deck, made a dangerous passage to the pilot house and saw the steerman lashed fast at his post of holding the wheel. Unwaveringly and inch by inch turning the ship out once more to sea, The pilot saw the watcher and smiled. Then the daring passenger went below and gave out a note of cheer. I have seen the face of the pilot and he smiled. All is well. You see, the angel says that the baby is a sign. And I hope that he still is to you. That every figurine, every little manger you see would be a reminder of this Advent season that our God came once that peace is possible, that peace is here, even as we await this great King Jesus to come again. Because regardless of the storm that you may feel you are in, the captain is smiling and he sees an end in sight. And today what we're gonna do is is sing. We're gonna worship this God and we're gonna sing some lyrics that you may not even feel and that's okay. The hope is that as a community, as a church, as believers, we would simply be able to lift up this banner of prayer together, knowing that those who need peace have someone to lean on even as they seek it in Christ, so that this prayer could continually be something that is realized right now, that we may be caught up in his presence and therefore caught up in his peace. Would you stand and sing with us? Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.